It has been a year since the final provisions of the America Invents Act took effect in March of 2013. Finnegan Partners' Erica Arner and Mark Sweet join us now for some observations of the AIA one year in, including the impact of the first inventor-to-file provision. Mark, let's start with you. What impact has the AIA had over the past year? I think the impact really needs to be uh, spread out a little bit more, not necessarily just the past year, but really the past 18 months, because that six months right prior to the March 16th implementation was a busy time for many of our clients. Many of the clients I work with were rushing to the patent office to file applications prior to that date in order to have the applications filed and examined under the old rules, which means there was a bit of less prior art out there. With respect to the new rules, since that date, many companies have revised their invention capture process, for example. They've put in place tighter deadlines for their internal and external application drafting to make certain that they get the applications filed sooner rather than later, which is a key point with first to file. They've also placed guidelines on focused applications. They want them to be more targeted inventions. With one of our clients, for example, they have a new guideline that they are not going to file any applications unless they've actually done testing on the uh, concept because they want to make certain that it's important, that it works, and that it's worthwhile to make the investment to attempt to get a patent through the patent office. Mark's point about prior art is especially notable to me. Since the first two file regime went into place, as he said, there's more prior art available after the changes to the patent law. And I've seen a lot of companies that are conducting prior art searches before filing applications where they may not have done so in the past. They are are more cognizant of the sort of heightened amount of prior art, and they're doing more of that investigation before filing the applications, which I think will lead to hopefully quicker allowances, quicker patents, and also high-quality patents. Erica, looking back at when the AIA was first rolled out in 2011, what provisions have you seen used most often? Well, I think the number one topic when you think about the AIA and what has been the the hottest topic or the most used provision is has got to be the post-grant review proceedings, um, both inter-parties review and post-grant review for covered business method patents were implemented in the AIA. They were signed into law in 2011, were first available in 2012, and, and since September of 2012, when the first petitions could be filed under these proceedings, the Patent Office has received over a 1,000 petitions, which I think exceeds the expectations of anyone, including the Patent Office, in the first year and a few months that those have been around. They provide new ways for third parties to challenge granted U.S. patents in the patent office, and a whole new trial mechanism was set up and a new trial board at the patent office. And they've proved to be very popular for a number of reasons and very well used by third parties, both involved in patent litigation and also simply challenging patents of their competitors, perhaps to create some white space or some openings for further development to remove some troublesome patents in their path. Uh, So I think those proceedings have proved to be kind of the big banner headline of things implemented in the AIA. And I agree with Erica 100% on that. That's been the big bang that the AIA has gotten have been these post-grant proceedings. That said, many other 
provisions uh, are in play. Another one that, that I've seen a lot of action in are these uh, Track 1 applications. And very briefly, what a Track 1 application is, is just the ability to pay some extra money and get your patent application to the front of the line, very similar to a VIP pass maybe at going to Disney World or something where you get to cut in front of the roller coaster line. Here you do that uh, at the PTO for the cost of $4,000 if you are a large entity and $2,000 if you're a small entity. And the numbers on those have grown from 2011 when they were implemented up to the present time. They started out with about 1000 the first year, jumped up to 5000 for fiscal year 2012, approached 7000 for fiscal year 2013, and we're rolling right along so far in 2014. So this is something that more and more people are becoming aware of, uh, and it can be a very valuable tool in order to be able to find out much sooner rather than later if your invention is patentable. Not to throw more numbers at you, but I will. About 25% of all of the total Track 1 applications filed to date, which is a number about 14,000, about 25% of those have already received allowances. And about uh, 6,500 of those, including allowances, have already received a final determination from the patent office, either a thumbs up or thumbs down from the patent office. So again, this is a very valuable and useful provision where people can find out earlier where they stand with respect to their patented invention. And that really has tremendous uh, impact on their business plan. Mark, can you tell us how these new provisions have impacted businesses' overall patent strategy? One of the main issues that we deal with, with the new rules in particular, are the expansion of the prior art and what qualifies as prior art. So it's causing businesses to look further afield for potential activities that may qualify as prior art against what they would like to do. Another thing that businesses are doing right now, go to a topic that, that Erica mentioned previously, are the post-grant proceedings. The use of those proceedings, either offensively or defensively, is something that more and more of the business people are considering, particularly using those proceedings to their benefit in license negotiations. Another thing that people are doing is that they're getting ready for what seems now like an inevitable challenge using one of these post-grant proceedings. Uh, we have many clients where they've received an indication that another company may be interested in trying to invalidate one of their patents, and they are getting ready and doing their due diligence sooner rather than later on how to get that patent ready to defend in an IPR proceeding, for example, an inter-parties review. So they don't want to be caught on their heels if um, one of their competitors files an IPR against them in a very strategic patent in their portfolio. You know, on the sort of flip side of that, we're seeing companies adjust their patent strategy on the litigation side as well. I think it's nearly 100% of patent litigations strategies now have to account for those post-grant review proceedings in some way or another. Uh, one way we're seeing that play out in particular is in district court litigation when a patent owner asserts a patent against an accused infringer. The infringer, in many cases, is able to stop, to stay that litigation based on filing the challenge petitions at the patent office. 
the statistics that we've seen so far are right about 80% of the time that a defendant asks a district court to stay a patent litigation because the defendant has filed a petition in the patent office challenging the patent the district court is granting the stay. That's a really high number and a very big advantage for defendants in patent litigation. And so when companies, big companies, are evaluating their overall patent litigation strategy, particularly on the defensive side, we're seeing the use of these petitions as a, as a mechanism to get district court litigations stayed is happening a lot, and district courts have demonstrated that they are very willing to stay litigations. And that's a very different regime than we had under the old law, where there were not very many stays. It was very difficult to get a stay from a district court based on anything happening at the patent office. Erica, what one thing has surprised you most about the AIA provisions? You know, the thing that has surprised me most is that the AIA was really the first major rewrite of the patent law in a generation since 1952. And it took many years of legislative efforts by many different groups to get the patent reform passed, to get the AIA passed into law. And so I think I expected, and many did, I think, that that would be it, that it would be another generation before we would see a significant rewrite of the patent law, that Congress would be tired of talking about patents, and and we'd kind of live under this AIA regime for the next 30 years. But in fact, we've seen in the last year or year and a half, a lot of legislative proposals trying to further change the patent laws. And that was surprising to me. I didn't think that there would be so much interest still focused on further legislation in the patent area. A lot of it comes from parties trying to find ways to solve what many consider to be a problem in the patent world involving non-practicing entity litigation. But there are other issues as well and legislative proposals to solve them. And while none has gotten to the point of signing it into law, many of them have moved very quickly through Congress and gotten a lot of traction. And I found that surprising. I think it maybe doesn't say anything bad about the AIA. Maybe what it says is there's just a heightened interest now in general about patents and the patent law that goes beyond the specific legislation of the America Invents Act. Yeah, and Erica, I agree that there clearly is a, a very heightened interest Uh, And we saw that actually with the implementation of the AIA. To me, the question was what surprised me the most. It's not really a surprise, but it was certainly nice to see. And that was the relatively smooth transition that occurred during the implementation process of these AIA provisions. Again, in part, uh, I think that's due to the tremendous interest of the IP community both at the Patent Office, which went to great lengths to get in front of this implementation with all their town hall meetings, the soliciting of information from their customers, the patent practitioners, to the patent practitioners themselves who you know, went to great lengths to follow along with the draft rules, comment on the draft rules, read the final rules, understand the, the final rules, and then explain those to all of our clients and really anybody who was interested. It was nice to see that that transition process went rather smoothly. There have been other PTO initiatives that certainly have have not gone anywhere near this smooth. And this, as Erica pointed out, is a huge one, the first change in PAT law in 60-plus years. 
So to me, I thought that was a very nice thing to see. Our guests have been Erica Arner and Mark Sweet, partners at Finnegan, one of the largest IP law firms in the world. For more commentary on intellectual property news and issues, to listen to other podcasts, and to receive additional information on the firm, please visit www.finnegan.com. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Finnegan.